Hi everybody, today is Saturday the 29th of May 2021 and welcome to the Scottsdale Saturday Big Book Study where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your host for the meeting. Please note that the speaker today, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the question and answers with sessions which follows will not be recorded. Our co-hosts today are Nancy J and Sue L. If you have any questions or any concerns, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts and you can do this directly by private message in the chat function. And we ask that you please keep your microphone on mute at all times during the workshop. And if you need to step away from your screen for any reason, please just try to disconnect your camera because it can be distracting for other members. Um, so now we will pass over to Harlan G. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Maria. And I'm so happy to be here. It is May 29th, 2021. And it's a glorious Saturday here in Arizona. I hope it's, excuse me, just as glorious wherever you are, whenever you are listening to this, be it on podcast or live, we have been talking about working with others. Sponsorship is the subject of what we have been talking about. And we're going to conclude that chapter today. But before we do, and we're going to take on the very beginnings of the chapter to wives, and we're going to talk about probably as sensitive an issue as there is. And when, when I mean, what I mean by very sensitive is we're gonna talk about family. We're gonna talk about intimacy, into me I see. But let's do the first subject first. We're talking about sponsorship. And one of the things that is very apparent in many, many people that I have come across in my travels through Overeaters Anonymous are people who will not sponsor. They are afraid to sponsor. And where this comes from is a fixation on results. We are not in the results business. We are not here to attain any type of certain result from sponsorship. If the person we're sponsoring recovers, fantastic. If the person we're sponsoring does not recover, well, it just, it's, it's most, it's out of our hands. It's not, it's, it's not mostly their relationship with God or their unwillingness. It's 100% that. As long as we're letting the book do the work, then I know that I've done everything that I could possibly do. And one of the things that I hear, I hear it on vision, I hear it uh, outside of vision is, well, you don't have to sponsor, you can just do service. You can lead a meeting or you can be the treasurer at a meeting or something. That's not what the book says. The book does not say, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to become the secretary or the, the inner group rep of our, of our meeting. It doesn't say that. It says we tried to carry this message to the alcoholic, this message to the compulsive overeater. That's what the book instructs us, instructs us to do. So it becomes very, very important for us to know that this is not an 11-step program. It is a 12-step program. Now, certainly in order for us to sponsor someone, we have to know that the step is a three-part step. The first part being having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. Have I had a spiritual awakening sufficient enough so as to dispel the desire for excess food. Now that desire may come back here and there, but I know that I have to work my 10th step. Have I had a spiritual awakening? Have I made most of my amends or all of my amends? Most is fine. Have I, am I doing 10 steps? Am I doing my 11th step? Am I, have I done the work that I needed to do? And if I haven't, then it's time to go back and review and start over again so that I can build my home on solid ground rather than try to make a mansion on sand. Very, very important. And we know that by giving this precious commodity to someone else, that we are being of maximum service to God and the people about us. And that the 12-step promises are gonna come true for us as well. But if we don't do this life-giving step, then it becomes very difficult. 
I thank God every day for the men and the people that I have sponsored. I used to sponsor women, so I'll say men and women. I no longer sponsor females. I believe that females should sponsor females. And I sponsor men, but I do have a tremendous gift in my life. And I try to thank them every single time they call by ending the call by saying, thank you for helping God keep me out of the food for one more day. And they are giving me the gift of their phone call. They're giving me the gift of their effort because it helps me. I learn so much more from them than they ever could from me. And one of the things that I've said very, very often in these rooms and on this, on this format, this podcast is, if I had a pill and this pill was this little notebook here, and I could give you this pill, this notebook, and it would cure you of this disease, I would not want to give it to you. And the reason I would not give it to you is I wouldn't want to cheat you out of the magical journey of what this is. Oh, the places you'll go and the people that you'll meet and the things that you'll experience are far beyond the wildest imagination that I could ever, ever dream for myself or anyone else. And I feel compelled to tell this story and then we're gonna move on. And I think this story really illustrates something that I hope will stay with you for a long time. And the best way to make it stay with you for a long time is to teach it tirelessly to others. Because remember that we have built in forgetters. We are not of our nature. We are not of our nature able to retain this information. And the reason that we cannot uh, uh, retain a lot of this information is our egos do not want us to. My ego wants to dispel this information. It doesn't want me to remember it. Why? Because my ego wants to be in charge of the show. My ego wants to be in charge of my life. And so the best way to learn this program is to, is to teach it. Clancy Immisland, who I consider to be one of my heroes, Clancy was a senior member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was one of the most humorous, one of the most wonderful speakers that it's ever been my pleasure to hear both in person and I've listened to every podcast that he's ever done. He's just wonderful in my opinion. I love Clancy. Clancy said, you do not get this program by absorbing spiritual information. You will get this program by transmitting spiritual information. But this is the story that I wanna share. And it's a story that I've shared many times. So if you've heard it before, bear with me. But one of the people that is a friend of, was a friend of mine, he's dead. His name was Scott. And Scott was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. And Scott was an outrageously handsome boy. The girls used to go crazy when he was anywhere in the area and they would go nuts. They'd flip their hair and laugh at all of his dumb jokes. He was, he was somebody that they were keenly interested in. And he was an actor. One day he got a, a role on Broadway, not off Broadway, mind you, on Broadway in a show. And he went out to New York to be in this show, in this on Broadway production. And he met a woman there and they married and they moved to Los Angeles, California. And when they were in Los Angeles, California, they, uh, he, not they, he became very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was a Saturday night, a rainy Saturday night in Los Angeles. And a call came in to the local AA office. And the call comes into the office and two of them go out. They never go out by themselves. They take two people with them and they go. And this was a call from a seedy little flea bag motel in East Los Angeles, which if you know anything about Los Angeles, the East part of the city is not the high rent district. The closer you are to the ocean, the more you pay for the real estate. The further away you are from the ocean, the less you pay, basically. 
But this was in a really kind of a flea bag motel. And he comes in with this other guy and there's a fella sitting on the bed drinking whiskey. And they go in and they talk to this guy for about an hour. And then they realize they're pouring their heart out to this guy and he is falling asleep. He's not a danger to himself. He's not a danger to anyone else. He's just falling asleep. So they kind of put him in bed, they covered him up and they took his whiskey bottle and they put it on the nightstand and they left. Five years later, five years later, guys, he, Scott, is doing a speech. He's doing a lead in San Diego, California for an Alcathon, huge giant meeting of AA and Al-Anon. And he's doing his thing from 11 to 11.50 a.m. And then they broke for lunch. This guy comes up to him and throws his arms around him at the end of his lead and says, are you Scott? And he says, yes, I am. He says, you saved my life. And he's got a bear hug on him. And, he, and Scott says to the guy, I don't believe I know you. Who are you? I appreciate what you're saying, but who are you? And he said to him, do you remember about four or five years ago, maybe you came to a motel in East Los Angeles and you were talking to a guy that was sitting on the bed and you guys left, you and another guy. And he says, yeah, I remember that. He says, well, that guy died about three weeks after you were there. He died. He said, I was hiding under the bed. I was too scared to come out and I heard every word you guys said and I haven't had a drink since that day. Any idiot can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the apples in a seed. You never know the immortality of being of maximum service to God and the people about us. You never know what God is going to do with your good deed. We just don't know the lives that we can touch when we do the things that are consistent with living this program. We have been talking in chapter seven about going to places that serve liquor and going to places and it's okay for us to be there if we have good reason. Now let's go to page 102 and we're gonna finish this chapter and then we're gonna move on to uh, four wives. We're gonna move on to two wives, not four wives, two wives. I'm on page 102. Why sit with a long face in places where there is drinking? Sighing about the good old days. If it is a happy occasion, try to increase the pleasure of those there. If it is a business occasion, go and attend to your business enthusiastically. Now that's a very important instruction because you see so many times in my life, I would attend things and I wouldn't compulsively overeat because I was afraid of doing it in front of maybe a certain person or maybe there was, maybe my wife was there when I was married or maybe whatever. I didn't wanna overeat in front of certain people. But what I did was I sat there in silent scorn. What the sentence here is telling me is add to the festivities, add to what is the joy there, be of service. And when I don't feel like I'm a part of the group, it is me that needs to act. It is not them. I need to be of service, not with an eye toward results. Now I go to a lot of gatherings where there's a lot of people there in their eighties and nineties. All I really need to do, all I really need to do is to no particular person in, in, in mind, just say out, what did the doctor say? Or how was your operation? And there's going to be discussion for two hours on that because they've all just been to the doctor and they've all just had an operation or something. So I found, but I take dishes back. I act in a way that is contributory to the joy and festivities as best I can. I'm not going to get up and juggle. I'm not going to get up and tell jokes or sing songs. 
but I can add to the festivities. And if you think about what Dr. Bob said to us, he bequeathed us something. He said, what this boils down to is love and service. And we all know what love is and we all know what service is. If I'm gonna sit there with a long face and I'm gonna be miserable, that's not helping anyone, especially me. But I can smile. I can ask somebody, how are you doing? I can take a dish back. I can help somebody. I can walk someone to their car if they're leaving. You know, I can walk them out to their car if they're female, they're leaving. Okay, so let's continue. If you are with a person who wants to eat in a bar, by all means, go along. Let your friends know they are not to change their habits on your account. At a proper time and place, explain to all your friends why alcohol disagrees with you. Many, many times I will eat before I go to a, a thing because I know there's not going to be anything there for me. And I remember years ago, now my friends, their kids are older, you know, they're not of that age. But when I used to go to little birthday parties at Chuck E. Cheese, or I would go to birthday parties at these pizza parlors, I would have, you know, where they have the games and stuff for kids. When my daughter was young too, I would eat before I went because I knew there's nothing there for me. And that's okay. I don't have to make a big deal about it or I don't have to be afraid to bring my own food. I don't have to be afraid to do that. And if there's some kind of minimum or something, I can always get it. I can always get a sparkling water. I can get a club soda. You know, I found the time to practice the disease. I found the time to eat the food. Now I have to make the effort and find the time at recovering. Not so as to bring attention to myself, but as a way of adding to the festivities. And how do I do that specifically? By not making a big deal about it. I don't have to make 15 announcements that I'm bringing my own food. I don't have to take an ad out in the local paper that said, poor Harlan, he went to the pizza parlor and he had to bring his own food with him. I can just do it and not make a big deal about it. And that's serving God. Sometimes I have to be humble. Sometimes I confuse humble with humiliation. Nobody's out to humiliate me. And I found that when people are, oh, what are you eating? Oh, why did you do that? Why couldn't you find something here? I basically ignore those people to a great degree and I do what I'm doing. And eventually they leave me alone because what I've learned is I can easily use that to turn control of my life and my will over to them and eat pizza so that they won't question me. And I don't need to be eating pizza. That's not on my food plan. That's not something consistent with my life. So I would rather be my own person and be an adult who takes care of himself than be so concerned of what people are thinking. Rule 62, don't take yourself so seriously. And a word to the wise is, the people that matter don't care. And the people that care don't matter. The people that matter don't care. And the people that care don't matter. In other words, if you're that into what I'm eating, I, this is not a person that I can entertain, you know, bantering back and forth with. I'm doing what I'm doing. It's a lunch. Get over it. It's a nothing. It's a zero. Let's continue. I have to, I have to sometimes remember that my life, my program, my abstinence is what's important to me and not what other people are thinking. Because I'll tell you something else in leaving that subject. The very people that encouraged me to eat pizza like everybody else were often the most vocal critics of me when I put on massive amounts of weight. So you couldn't, I can't win with certain people anyway. And the people that care don't, the people that care about what I'm eating don't matter. And the people that matter to me don't care because they understand. Let's continue. If you do this thoroughly, few people will ask you to drink. While you were drinking, you were withdrawing from life little by little. Now you are getting back into the social life of this world. Don't start to withdraw again just because your friends drink liquor. Eventually, 
there may be three things that change for you, your playgrounds, your playmates, and your play toys. They may change. You may not be so quick to play with people who like to go out for eating all the time and engross, engorge themselves with food. Your job is to be at, a, at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness. Notice that that word maximum helpfulness, that's an Oxford group term. Remember on page 77, it says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum usefulness to God and the people about us. And in the Oxford group, they had an expression, are you being maximum? And that's a very, very important phrase from the Oxford group. And you see it repeated in the book because Bill Wilson came out of the Oxford group where he was criticized heavily. And why was Bill Wilson criticized? The reason that Bill Wilson was criticized was this. Bill Wilson was bringing in drunks to the Oxford group and they began to be called the drunk squad of the Oxford group. But the Oxford group wasn't really crazy about these drunks. They wanted him to go out and recruit people from Wall Street. They wanted him to go out and recruit people from industry. They wanted him to go out and recruit people with what? Money. They wanted him to bring people in with money. Don't confuse the purpose of the Oxford group with the purpose of AA. <clears throat> Excuse me. AA is not concerned with how much money you have. Drop a buck or two in the basket or don't. You are equally as welcome here at meetings. Whether you contribute to the seventh tradition, you won't or you can't is not the issue. If we fail, we fail. If we make it, we make it. In the Oxford group, they wanted you to contribute and the drunks had no money but they knew that the guys from industry that Bill Wilson could possibly bring in did have money and that's who they wanted in their midst. So Bill, by using this term, maximum service, maximum helpfulness, is really thumbing his nose back at the Oxford group because he would say to anybody that would listen, my purpose from God is to, is to help drunks. And they'd say, no, it's not. Your purpose is to use your Wall Street connections to bring in people of industry. And he would shake his head. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. And he would walk away. And this was a bone of contention between Bill Wilson and many of the Oxford group members who were not alcoholics. Sam Shoemaker understood, but a lot of these guys just did not. They wanted people to get sober, but they would poke Bill Wilson with their elbow and say, I really like that you brought this guy in here, but he just puked on my new shoes. So the bottom line is there was contention. There was a lot of this going on. So never hesitate to go anywhere. If you can be helpful, you should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. I never fear. I, you know, sometimes I, I, I get stuck in airports and sometimes I get stuck in cities. I remember recently, not recently, actually now, it's like two, three years ago, I was in Virginia. I was in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and my flight back to Phoenix got canceled. And so I had to go from Virginia Beach to Orlando. From Orlando, I had to go to Dallas. From Dallas, I had to go to Phoenix. Oy, Vezmir, what a, what a Megillah that was. Okay, fine, I made it home in one piece. And then as you all know, I've talked about this, the, one of the worst days of my life, there, there have been very few days worse than this. I got stuck in the Houston airport on my way to Mobile, Alabama for 14 flipping hours. And I was in that Houston airport from 11 a.m. until what, two o'clock the next morning, whatever it was, three o'clock the next morning whatever it was. Oh my God. Oh, you can't sleep and you can't stay awake and you, you're not fish and you're not foul. It was terrible, terrible. You know what? I made it and I'm here to tell the story. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives and God will keep you unharmed. What a beautiful promise. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives and God will keep you unharmed.
Many of us keep liquor in our homes. We often need it to carry green recruits through a severe hangover. Some of us still serve it to our friends provided they are not alcoholic. But some of us think we should not serve liquor to anyone. We never argue this question. We feel that each family in the light of their own circumstances ought to decide for themselves. <laughs> we are careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. Experience shows that such an attitude is not helpful to anyone. Every new alcoholic looks for this spirit among us and is immensely relieved when he finds we are not witch burners. A spirit of intolerance might repel alcoholics whose lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. We could not even do the cause of temperate drinking any good for not one drinker in a thousand likes to be told anything about alcohol by one who hates it. Someday we hope that Alcoholics Anonymous will help the public to a better realization of the gravity of the alcoholic problem. And I think to a greater degree than Overeaters Anonymous, they have educated the public that alcoholism is a disease, that alcoholism is an inherent malady of the mind and malady of the body. I think that to a great degree, Alcoholics Anonymous has far surpassed our ability to make a dent in the understanding that whether you're from Yale or jail, whether you're a movie star, a TV star, whether you are from, from Park Avenue or a park bench, this is a disease and it doesn't care who it affects. Be you black, be you white, be you Jewish, be you Catholic, be you Protestant, be you Muslim, be you Buddhist, be you whatever you are, it does not matter. This disease will strike you down and this disease does not care who it takes out. It would rather see you dead, but it will settle for you alone and isolated, in pain, in physical distress, close to death. And the bottom that you had, the last bottom that you had, has a trap door. There is a bottom beneath where you were. I swore to God I would never go over 300 pounds. I swore to God I would never go under 400 pounds, over 400 pounds. I swore to God I would never go over 500, over 600, over 700. I remember I couldn't choke back the tears when I was 17 years old. I told this story here. I was 17 years old. I was a junior at Mather High School in Chicago. I broke my ankle in gym class. My mother took me to the hospital and Dr. Bernstein looked over his glasses. I don't wear glasses anymore, but he looked over his glasses and he said to my mother, Virginia, he isn't gonna live to see 30. He's 17 years old and he's over 300 pounds. I was 308 as a 17 year old. By the time I was a senior in high school, months later, I was 335. And my mother, my mother was crying that day. My mother was crying. And where did we go after the hospital? We went right to 30, 31 flavors. And I don't think there were any of the 31 flavors that we didn't consume quite massive quantities of that day after getting the news that I was near death, we went for ice cream. We were both compulsive overeaters and that is how we assuaged our fear and our emotions. We shall be of little use if our attitude is one of bitterness or hostility, drinkers will not stand for it. And in conclusion, in italics, after all our problems were of our own making, bottles were only a symbol Besides, we have stopped fighting anybody or anything we have to. I hope that everyone who is hearing my voice today or hearing it on a podcast at some point in the future will remember that there were people who took the time to pass this to you. There were people who stuck their neck out and they spent their time, they spent their energy they spent their, their uh, uh, time teaching you this program. 
you have got to return that favor. You have got to return that service. It is a work of God, and it is an insult not to. In 1935, June the 10th, a spark was struck. And the spark that was struck carried a world into a new vista of understanding. And that message got to you. And somehow you have to pay it back. Don't make me come down there to where you are. You've got to do this service. Okay. Chapter eight is a chapter that a lot of people do not like to study. They don't like to read to wives. The, a lot of the language is pretty archaic. And a lot of the people that are in OA, be they male or female, they get the impression that it's kind of silly for us to consider a chapter where the doting little wife with her apron and her whatever is the wife and she's innocent and pure and in comes the drunk. There's a comic strip that I like called Andy Cap. And Andy's always getting drunk and it, it takes place in England. He's always getting drunk and he's always getting into trouble. And his wife is just the dotering wife and that she's just there to help him out. And that's not what we're going to be talking about when we talk about this chapter. Let's dispel a couple of myths about the chapter. The chapter was not written by Lois Wilson. The chapter was written by Bill Wilson. But if it is said that couples sometimes have bad days, when he didn't let Lois write this chapter for the big book, there were a couple of bad days in the Wilson household. I think Bill might have spent quite a bit of time on the couch and in the doghouse after this chapter was put to bed. But Bill did write the chapter. And we have a situation, most of us do, where we have the world and it looks at us or it looks at our family or it looks at whatever, and it sees something that we know is inconsistent with reality. My father was a good man. My dad was a really good guy. He was generous to a fault. He would give you the shirt and the skin off of his back. I've told you little stories about my dad, but I will also tell you that he was very abusive to my mentally ill mother. Why he married her? If I asked him the question during his life, I never got an answer that was memorable. If he hated her so much, why in the hell did he ever marry her? And how in the world did I ever get born? They were very abusive to each other. They showed their love for one another with pots and pans flying through the air and lit cigarettes flying through the air at each other and insults and horrible things that they did to one another. In the name of whatever, we did the same thing that other families do. We kept a facade as best we could and we did the best we could to keep up that facade, that phony image of the family that we saw on TV. And most of you, maybe not most of you, maybe some of you, I shouldn't say most of you, some of you come from that kind of thing. You come from a family that tried to look good on the outside, where inside there was boiling, simmering, horrible hatred, violence, insults, horrible, horrible feelings. And through his example, my fathers, and through his encouragement, I learned to blame and abuse my mother as well. And one of the things that you've heard me talk about is when I get to the ninth step, I talk more about this. And I just had a birthday, so I just did this the other day. But I thank God for my mother and I thank God for my dad. But I wonder what he was thinking when he married her. I can't even imagine what in the world this man was thinking when he married her. Uh, I blamed her for everything. I was not a good son to her. I try to be one now. I think she'd be proud of me now. I'm still not a White Sox fan, although I don't root for them to lose. She was a White Sox fan. And the, the Arizona Cardinals, unbeknownst to a lot of people, 
were the other Chicago football team when, when I was, they didn't leave Chicago until 1960. And my mother was a South Sider and she hated uh, the Bears and the, and the Cubs because Wrigley, uh, Wrigley Field, I don't know if you know this or not, was restricted until 19, in the 1950s. Wrigley Field was restricted. Blacks could not attend games. And then all of a sudden with Jackie Robinson and Ernie Banks and things like that, things started to loosen up. My mother couldn't stand the Cubs and my mother couldn't stand the Bears. She liked the Cardinals and the White Sox. If you don't know who these teams are, I'm sorry, I'm just sharing with you my life. But they were all Chicago teams. And she loved Bill Beck because he kept the team here. But anyway, not here, but in Chicago. These memories of the insults and these memories of these horrible things carry with me forever. I try not to think about them, but often the harder I try not to think about them, the more they come to light. Oftentimes, the more I fight them, the more they gain mastery over some of the things I think and do. And so I've had to work very hard at purging these things from my life as best I can. But this is who I am, and this is what made me the person that I am today. And when I got married, I did the best I could to treat my wife with the utmost respect. I did the best I could never to scream and shout insults at her. I did the best I could, and I was more often than not highly successful. But their example to me of sexless behavior, of sexless existence and no affection made me quite anorexic in this area as an adult. There's love addicts. We're not going to go all sidetracked into SLAA issues, but I'm just saying there's love addicts and there's love avoidance. And I became big love avoidant because I was morbidly obese. And so I was convinced not only what physically I was emasculated, I was emotionally emasculated as well. When I looked at a girl and I found her attractive, I knew in my mind, she'd never want to go out with me. I was the fattest kid around. Whereas a lot of my friends, they look at a girl that they find attractive and they have every confidence in the world that if she is single, that they can get her to go out with them. And I've never had that kind of confidence. And it affects me today. It affects me because I am single and it affects me in every aspect of that whole thing. And that's why I tried so desperately to make a go of my marriage when my wife wanted a divorce, not just because I loved my family and I loved my child. Part of the reason that I was so motivated to spend so much time and effort to keep my marriage together, even though my wife was already seeing someone else while we were married, was I was scared to death I'd never find anybody. And even though we had a bad marriage, she's not a bad person, but we had a bad marriage. I was scared to death I'd never find anyone else. And that kind of fear haunts me and affects me today. You don't get rid of that in one lump hunk. You don't get rid of that because you say, gosh, I really need to get rid of that fear. I work at it constantly and I have to turn that over to God. Why am I talking about all this? The reason that I'm talking about all this is we are going to delve into the first chapter of the post 12th step world. And when the chapters were written, this was very deliberate. We've talked about the 12th step working with others, but what's the third part of step 12? The third part of step 12 is to practice these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. And where do we practice them? And how do we practice them? We practice them in all of our affairs. What are our affairs? Our spouses or the person closest to us. Our families, expanding it out just a little bit. That's the chapter to the family afterwards. And then in the workplace. The easiest place for me to practice my step. It's not 20 to 11. Oh, my God. Anyway, every time I look at the clock and I try not to, I get shocked that it's so late. But anyway, okay. Well, what's the easiest place for me to practice my program? The easiest place for me to practice my program is here with you or in a meeting of OA. It's 
very, very simple. Everybody's on the same page, everybody gets it and so on. What's the harder place to practice my program? It's in the workplace because money's involved. The security instinct, self-esteem, uh, oftentimes sex, which is unfortunate, but reality. Uh, oftentimes, you know, it's that self-esteem, the pocketbook, the emotional security, the social instinct. Everything is cooking with gas in the workplace. And where's the hardest place of all for me to work this program? Well, boys and girls, if you sit in your own home with your own family, with the people closest to you, you are our winner for today. Because that is the hardest of all places to work the program. Because these are the people that see what's underneath my skin, that see what's underneath my fingernails, that know me as none others do. So what we're gonna try to do is we're gonna try to keep an open mind as we go through the chapter to wives, and we're just gonna get into the beginning of it today, but we're gonna keep an open mind. And what I'd like to do on the journey through these chapters is to give you some new information to consider that it's not just a chapter about a man and his wife, the man being the alcoholic and the wife being the little Al-Anon, but it really is a chapter about sponsorship. And it really is a chapter to us as the addict. And it really is a chapter that works at so many different levels that I'm gonna do the very best I can to shine a lantern on those levels so that we can further our knowledge, further our understanding of these chapters and maybe never look at them again with disdain and impatience. Hopefully that's what we can get. So let's take a look at page 104, 104, 104. With few exceptions, our book thus far has spoken of men, not true. What the book has spoken of thus far is the alcoholic, whether they're male, whether they're female or what have you. What the book has thus far spoken of is alcoholics. But we have, what we have said applies quite as much to women, not necessarily women, it applies to the non-alcoholic as well as the alcoholic. Our activities in behalf of women who drink are on the increase. Our activities in favor of the people who don't drink are also on the increase because it's the family. There is every evidence that women regain their health as readily as men if they try our suggestions. Now, when the book was first thought of was 37, late 37, 38, it was published in 39. Most of the writing other than Silkworth, other than Silkworth and Bill's story, most of the writing took place in the latter stages of 38 and early 39. As they got closer to 1939, they picked up the pace and the Akron groups were not really that interested in the book it was really the New York groups that pushed it and pushed it and pushed it. <sighs> the Akron groups were not really that interested in it. But for every man who drinks, others are involved. The wife who trembles in fear of the next debauch. The mother and father who see their son wasting away. Among us are wives, relatives, and friends whose problem has been solved. Notice it doesn't say problems. It says problem. Let's take a look at that for just a second here. Remember the thesis line of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is on page 45. And what does the big book say on page 45? It says very simply, the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem it doesn't say problems, it says problem. And what's my problem? My problem is lack of power. That's my dilemma. And what the book is going to do is going to hook me up with the power of God. And in finding God, all of my difficulties, all of my challenges will begin to recede. 
This is very, very important. If you're not careful, you can miss it. Among us are wives, relatives, and friends whose problem has been solved, as well as some who have not yet found a happy solution. We want the wives of Alcoholics Anonymous to address the wives of men who drink too much. What they say will apply to nearly everyone bound by ties of blood or affection to an alcoholic. What is the book telling us so far? It is telling us also what Dr. Silkworth said about this being an altruistic movement. Silkworth said that in order for the message to be carried, it must have depth and weight. Bill Wilson illustrates for us beautifully that it was Ebby Thatcher who brought him the message. Now, when Bill Wilson started drinking heavily in 1917, Lois was quite upset. And for 17 years between 1917 and late 1934, a little over 17 years, Bill Wilson pretty much stayed drunk. There were periods of sobriety. During his first hospitalization, he came out and stayed sober one year. After his second hospitalization, he stayed sober until November, from April to November. And on November 11th, he started drinking again and triggered the allergy. But one of the things that Lois struggled very, very much with was, Ebby Thatcher, this bum, this this black sheep of the Thatcher family, remember, the Burnhams knew the Thatchers. Lois knew Ebby when he was in the buggy, when he was in the stroller in diapers. She remembers the Thatchers and Mr. Thatcher, the father who had been the mayor of Albany, New York, and his brother was highly successful. The Thatchers were wealthy people. They were industrialists. They were in the steel business in Albany, New York and the father became the mayor, and then later the brother became the mayor. And here was Ebby, a drunk, a sot, and he gets Bill sober after everything I've done, after everything I did and endured from this bum, Ebby Thatcher gets him sober, and I don't even wanna talk about this guy that he's gonna meet in Akron frickin' Ohio, and I couldn't get him sober, but these guys could get him so. This was baffling to Lois. This was completely baffling. But through the Oxford group, one talking to the other, they found comfort in the language of the heart. And in 1950, Ann Bingham and Lois Wilson would change the world by founding a little program that some of you may know called Al-Anon. Lois Wilson and Ann Bingham, not Ann Smith. Ann Smith was already dead when Al-Anon was formed. But Ann Bingham, who was a society woman whose husband was a drunk, Ann Bingham and Lois Wilson would form Al-Anon. What was their premise? that only a woman or, or whoever that had been in these shoes could help a person who's currently in these shoes. And that became their premise. And it works today. It works until, it'll work until eternity. And Bill Wilson illustrates for us many times through the book and tells us that only an alcoholic can help an alcoholic. And only someone who's bound by blood or affection can really understand this language of the heart that he, that he speaks of. As wives of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm on page 104, we would like you to feel that we understand as perhaps you can. We want to analyze mistakes we have made. We want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to be overcome. Save death, 
wherever you are right now, wherever your current circumstances have you pinned, there is a way to a better life. I come from Bedlam. My mother and father, they showed their love for one another with pots and pans flying through the air. My mother had three distinct personalities. She could be a two-year-old or three-year-old. She could be a screaming, raving lunatic, or she could be a pretty together normal person. You never knew what you were going to get. You never knew how long it was going to last. We had a home. We're in the last while of their life. We were about 1,100 pounds. They were about 275 apiece. My mother and father were compulsive overeaters to the mats. My father was also a smoker. I never saw my mother or father drink a sip of liquor in my entire life. Never did I see them drink. But I have all of the characteristics of a child of alcoholism. And our home was alcoholic in that it was just bedlam. And there are people that come from a lot of money and their home was bedlam. And there are people that don't come from a lot of money. It doesn't seem to matter. What matters is that there is a way out. And we're going to look at this differently, hopefully, by examining it, by examining it from that perspective. Let's continue. We don't have a lot of time left, so I'm going to try to stop yakking and stick to it. We have traveled a rocky road. There is no mistake about that. You know, it costs us about $100,000 for your membership in OA. Take a look at the food that you ate in your life that you didn't want to eat, that you knew was killing you. Take a look at the clothes that you never got into. You never wore them. You gave them away with the tags still on them. What about the gyms that you joined? What about the, and I'm not knocking psychiatry or psychology or doctors. I'm not knocking these things, but you went there in search of a solution sometimes for an eating disorder and they don't have one there. They, we have one here. They can help with other things. When I needed my knee replaced or my hip replaced, I didn't go to a meeting. I went to a surgeon and they helped me better than OA could. But I would not go to the surgeon and say, you know what? I really want to eat. And he'd say, good for you. <laughs> I would go to a meeting or I would call my sponsor or I would call one of you. Okay. Look at all of the pay and way. Look at the money that you've paid into these places. And yet here you are. There is something about the human ego that has to try every wrong answer before the right answer becomes workable for us. I don't know what that is, but the ego will not let us come in here and do the right answer. You know, I've yet to meet the person that's a true compulsive overeater, came into the rooms and just got it, just walked in, sat down and got it. I have yet to meet that person. Normally, we come in and we go out and we come in and we go out. And hopefully by the second, third, fourth time, whatever it is, we all of a sudden say, you know what? <clears throat> I better do this. And we find that it's not so hard. It's not so horrible. It's not so painful as you might think. It really is okay. Let's, con let's continue. We have had long rendezvous with hurt pride frustration, self-pity, misunderstanding, and fear. Sometimes those were self-inflicted, or all of it is self-inflicted, and sometimes it was because we couldn't control another person. But whether you have it come from that selfishness where you want to control another person, or it's just the things, this is where the disease lives. The disease lives in my perception of what is going on around me and my misperception of how it's going to affect me. Am I going to get what's coming to me? Because it's all about me, 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 right? So if I perceive that I'm going to be taken care of, you're going to stick to my script. Mo, Larry, and Curly are going to stick to my script, as is Lassie and Rin Tin Tin. They're going to stick to my script, and I'm fine. I'm okay. 
but there's always going to be that guy maybe in China or maybe in India or maybe in Nepal where they're not going to stick to my script and that's going to drive me crazy. And where does the recovery live? The recovery lives in my willingness to take action after action after action after action to do the necessary steps to dispel the desire to feel better through food. The disease lives in my perception of what's going on around me and how I perceive that it's going to affect me. And what normally filters that perception? Fear. Fear will, will permeate through everything. And because I fear, I will catastrophize. I will catastrophize. Where does the recovery live? In my willingness to take action after action after action to dispel the toxicity of these emotions, the ravages of the defects of character so that the urge to eat is simply not there. I hope that's clear and we've gone through it twice. If we need to, we'll go through it again and whatever, but this is very, very important stuff. Let's continue. These are not pleasant companions. We have been driven to maudlin sympathy, top of 105, to bitter resentment. Some of us veered from extreme to extreme, ever hoping that one day our loved ones would be themselves once more. In other words, stick to my damn script, buddy. Stick to my script and follow what I want you to do. Our loyalty and the desire that our husbands hold up their hold up their heads and be like other men have begotten all sorts of predicaments. We have been unselfish and self-sacrificing. We have told innumerable lies to protect our pride and our husband's reputation. We have prayed. We have begged. We have been patient. We have struck out viciously. We have run away. We have been hysterical. We have been terror-stricken. We have sought sympathy. We have had retaliatory love affairs with other men. In other words, what are they describing here? They are describing the character defect of self-seeking. And what is self-seeking? Self-seeking is the action that we take to get others to stick to our script. Selfishness is the script. Self-seeking are the actions that we take to get others to stick to our script. Very, very important. And every action that was just described are actions that we take to get people to stick to our script. And why do we want them to stick to our script? We want them to stick to our script because we feel that this is gonna make us better and it's gonna make our lives easier. And so these are the things that we do. Our homes have been battlegrounds many an evening. In the morning, we have kissed and made up. Our friends have counseled chucking the men and we have done so with finality, only to be back in a little while, hoping, always hoping. Our men have sworn great solemn oaths that they were through drinking forever. We have believed them when no one else could or would because no one else had to. We had to believe them because our finances, our romances, our other factors were tied up in this. And so what did we lose along the way? Objectivity. We lost our objectivity. And that's what we lost. And that's what happens when we live this way. We lose our objectivity and we find ourselves in situations that are desperate. We have believed them when no one else could or would. Then in days, weeks, or months, a fresh outburst. If I'm not working the steps, it is not a question of if I'm going to binge again, if I'm going to eat again. It is a question of when. 
I am not able to cure this on my own. It is not possible for me to do that. Now, I hope that in the coming weeks while we're in these chapters, we can build and continue to grow in an understanding of these chapters that we haven't looked at in the past. And so that one of the things I really hope for is that we'll stop discounting these chapters because there is so much wonderment and so much good information in them that I hope moving forward that I will be able to, or you, you'll be able to see things that you never saw in here before. Okay, now I am going to turn this 